As those of you who are friends with Book Arts Press know, there will be a pause in Book Arts Press lectures until April while I go off to Philadelphia to give four lectures at the University of Pennsylvania and perhaps more to the point, write them. And I will be announcing a lecture schedule for April and May, probably in about the middle of the month. I'm glad to see so many of my own current students here this evening. Uh, for those of you who are not current students and who are former students, it needs only to be said that the type test is this Friday, which explains the, uh, the exceptional devotion that you see surrounding you. Our speaker this evening is an Icelandic designer, very widely known both in this country and in England for his interest in calligraphy, an interesting example of which you can see decorating the blackboard in the Book Arts Press, where I hope you will all adjourn with the speaker after his lecture for a glass of wine and conversation. Bream will be speaking tonight on Forces for Change in Letter Form, and it's a great pleasure to have him here at Columbia. Thank you, and I am glad to be here. This is not the first time I give the lecture. If any of you sat in at MIT about a year ago or at San Quentin about a year ago, <laughs> yes, well, um, this may be familiar stuff. Um, I think... Yes, I think this is a safe place to start talking about writing. Um, I think it is fairly universally accepted that towards the beginning of, of the history of anything that, that was written down, if you wanted to write bull, this was the, one, this was the way you did it. Um, later, on an acrophonic principle, this would have turned into the letter B, but as it happened, it turned into the letter A. Um, uh, as they didn't use the same um, phonetics then. Uh, what I would like to show to you here is the zigzag under the goose. Um, this is an Egyptian hieroglyph, an ideogram for water. Uh, and before I take that on, uh, there is the cross next to it with the loop on top. Uh, which I might add, although it has very little to do with this talk, um, has been thoroughly misunderstood in our age. People wear this around the neck as being an Egyptian symbol for the unity between heaven and man and things like that. This is, in fact, the Egyptian hieroglyph for sandal strap. The big toe goes through the hole. But... Uh, that was not really what I meant to talk about. What I meant to talk about was the zigzag there. That was one of the Egyptian hieroglyphics that stood for the sound M. The normal one was an owl, but this one, so much easier to write, became the Phoenician one on your left, and later, turning it around, an early Greek one. Uh, of course, with simplification, it started looking, come on, that's better, I wasn't pointing it in the right direction, it started looking like that, and you can probably follow very easily how this came about. Now, before I go any further, looking at the letter M, and we will certainly come back to it with a vengeance, uh, I'd like to make a little bit of a statement of where we are heading with all of this. Um, plot development, you might call it. What you have here on your, on your right is a Carolingian hand, and a very good one. And it pointed later to um, the big, what is it called that, that proves the rule? Exactly, it points to the big exception in letter forms when 
when it started getting narrower and narrower around 1200 and ended up squeezed together like this, becoming the Gothic textura. This is the only time that a major style of one kind, would of a bookhand, would develop into another major style of a bookhand without having a link in between of a documentary hand. Now, if that sounds a bit heavy going, that is what I've got explanations for. Now, here is another example. This is this is a definition of, of the difference between a documentary hand and a book hand. You have a document on your right, which is um, rather a nasty document uh, for, for content, but we are only looking at uh, the function at the moment. It was like, say, the sale of a slave, a settlement of a boundary dispute. It was not meant for repeated reading. The book on your left was, so it was written with infinite care. A document was where clerks could take shortcuts. So that was where the development happened. So the equivalent of a book hand, say in the world of art, would be a picture that was meant for repeated viewing, and the shorthand, the documentary version of that, would be one of those. <laughs> so we have more or less defined our terms. Uh, back to the textura. Now this is written with great difficulty and was meant for repeated reading and therefore meant to be legible. And when they were in a hurry, they wrote like that. And when enough people had got used to that, then they started commissioning books in this style. And they would... I think this thing needs a battery or something. Um, it would look like this. Fracture is an upgrading of a documentary hand, which was in turn full of shortcuts from uh, an earlier and more difficult book hand. This was, th there was a great deal of um, class distinction between the two, not only in the function, but also in the fact that the book scribes and the clerks who wrote these different types had in their time as much of a gulf between them as you would have a printer typographer today in and a humble typist on the other. So here is what happens when people have um, a lot of time. This was put on the um, door of a courthouse in Rhode Island. And this is how they do it when they are in a great hurry as when they put it on the marine barracks, barracks in um, uh, Rhode Island. Um, and you can see the, the documentary elements, especially in how the writing instrument has not been lifted as carefully between strokes. Now, here is a document, a sale of a slave, in fact, on papyrus, uh, second century, if memory serves me. And what I'd like to look at here is in the middle of the third line from the top, two letters standing side by side, There. This, those are not the letter A that have taken too many vitamins. These are the letter B. And uh, I will go out of microphone range again very soon to show to you how this could possibly be so. And it may be beginning to dawn on the people who came here for type recognition that the joke is on them. Now, I take it that you can hear me. Ah, so when you, when you begin writing this thing with a broad edge brush, you slide it into the downstroke sideways to get the paint flowing. Then you make the downstroke and again you flip it over so that you don't get a block of paint at the bottom. You take the brush up, you make the first loop, and then you make the second loop. Only a flesh wound. So, essentially, you are following, when you decipher these things, 
the ductus, the mo movement pattern in the stroke sequence. If you've got that one figured out, the rest is a piece of cake. Um, so here is the beginning of the first stroke going down and the flipping over. And here is, roughly speaking, the two groups done in a great hurry. Well, in those days at least, it was legible to them. On with the plot. Back to the M. Now, this M is written with four downstrokes, which includes then pen lifts and actually putting the pen down exactly where you want it to go so, so that you get clean joints. And, of course, this one was too marvelous to last. So, this one here, you have an M here, that is done with three strokes, because at the second stroke, you flip the brush up, and you have immediately saved a whole stroke, and this is a giant leap forward for, for a sign painter and for mankind. So, third century, they have finally worked out an M, which you will recognize there, that was such a good solution that we are still using it today. Now, if this was all there was to the development of writing, we would all be scrolling something that looked very much like Pittman shorthand, and we are not, because there, is, there are two forces that pull in opposite directions. One is looking for shortcuts all the time, simplifying life, and the other one is showing off, tendency towards artificial um, letters with ornament and um, a great deal of trouble involved. And that is pretty much the theme that we are going to be seeing me play on from now on until I let you go. Um, so here we have an upgrading of many cursive elements into the early unshow, around 300 or so. And we are looking at a close-up of a letter from the middle of the column up there. And you can see by looking at these strokes that there is first one downstroke, a second downstroke, that this could really begin a capital letter M. And then you see the way they were heading by the third downstroke, which hooks inwards. It's so much better always to end these strokes on a hairline, because then you can pick up the uh, pen cleanly. So very soon you have uncials that start getting difficult to write and looking like a sort of a cross-section of a hamburger and a way for the scribe to show off how good he is. Uh, here is uh, ornamentation from a top of a page of the 42-line Bible, uh, an M that looks like a silly hat. But if you know what went into it, this becomes very legible, um, a Gothic Anshul M. And you have it here in early printing, the same thing, only that more ornament has set in. And here, as a superbly ridiculous extension of this principle. Uh, this is an Icelandic wood-carved M from the back of a bridal bench. Uh, the, the whole inscription reads, God have mercy on me, which I think is the proper spirit. And if you think that is bad, here is another Icelandic wood-carving. And the top line here has this same M, which is illegible to everybody who hasn't seen this and the things that led up to it, but very, very simple for us to understand. Another example. This is um, a picture of a bronze inscription very much enlarged. This is Roman Republican, rim of a, of a vase, and this shows 
the first stage of a letter Q, just a little notch added onto the O to distinguish it. And then, of course, this delight of the arm that goes into making a dramatic flourish uh, came into the picture so that you have them going better and better. And to make this shortcut again, to write these things faster, I will have to get on with it and um, wave my arms around a little bit. You begin up here in the pinnacle point, remember, and you make this down stroke here. Then you lift, you begin again at the pinnacle point, make the second one, and then you go over. Now that you know that, this is very simple, this is the first half, this is the second half, this is how it joins. So in the Roman cursive, you would make a great deal of a jump towards simplification when you link this up and then continue with the tail of the cube, which next time they went and upgraded this a little bit with a broad edge pen, which is a more of a scribe's tools than a clerk's, and onto papyrus at, at the time, this thing here, you have the first um, example of the half anshul, the first example of the half anshul, which then led to the Carolingian and the humanistic minuscule, and to our typewriter lowercase q that has the tail on the right-hand side and instead of underneath. That is how these things start making sense um, when you look at them long enough or at least uh, your brain starts swelling so that you think things make sense. Uh, here is a combination in the lowest part of this line that I'd like to look at. Um, there, there are people who no matter where the conversation begins, always end up talking about women. I'm like that, except that I tend to end up talking about late Roman cursive, and we might as well get into it. Now, these three letters that I'm going to point at are a G, an E, and an S, and I'm going to try to explain to you the logic that underlies them, even in rather an unfamiliar form. And, uh, oh yes, we'll, we'll go through that. Two aspirins and to bed, and you won't remember a thing tomorrow. First, the G. This thing is not working. It needs a battery. It needs something. It's opening garage doors all over the place. <laughs> This was quite a respectable letter until the late Middle Ages. It's what's called, called the Joch, and you see it in local brew of Guinness even today. Um, it was a, a very nice way of using a G in Ireland uh, up to about the 1930s, and then it, it has tapered off. You get it on some of the currency even now. Thank you. Now, what I was going to get into next was the E. And here is an early sample. This is 
the earliest um, sample of, a, of the uh, Latin alphabet. This is the Lapis Niger in, in Forum Romanum. And it is written with every second line going the wrong way and everything mir mirror reverse. As you see, that is one of those silly names that the police tell, tell you to, to say when they've been stopping you in the middle of the night, Bustrophodon, which means turning the way that an ox does in plowing. And see three times Bustrophodon and we will let you go. Um, um, the E turned very quickly from this thing into a proper looking E. This is carved by Edward Cattish and then gilded. And you you will notice in this um, a didactic element. Um, he was exaggerating these things to prove a point that he held, and uh, a point that I think will probably survive um, skepticism. Um, it goes into the thing that I talked about with the B. You start up here with a Thank you. So we get to Baskerville, which is my only concession to next Friday, um, because when Baskerville did an E like that, he made he followed these traditions without having a clue why this was done. But punch cutting was a conservative uh, approach to life, and they did it the way that it had been done before. And it wasn't really until Edward Cattish came out with a controversial and, and opinionated book, still very well worth reading, called Origin of the Serif, that this puzzle was solved, at least reasonably. So, you have it here. That is what Cattish said that people had done. So, <clears throat> when you hurry up writing an E, you make the first downstroke and the bottom crossbar in one go, and then you make a loop that stands for the top crossbar and the middle crossbar, and then you connect over. And here you see a diagram of the combination that we had before. You did understand the G, I hope. Otherwise, we can always go back to it. And um, here is an explanation of the E. We will come to the S uh, a bit later when you've um, been walked around the block once. Um, so with this kind of movement pattern, the styles changed into a minuscule. It went through the um, Gothic tradition. It surfaced in the Italic when they still wrote an E like that. And getting to this faceless loop that we call a lowercase handwritten E today was probably uh, mainly the result of the copper plate pen, the pointed pen that had to uh, make great demands on the change of letter forms so that you could get it um, written with reasonable speed on uh, the kind of paper that they had. When you, if you go too fast and, and you have to make complicated letter forms like that, you tend to stick the pen point in the paper and splatter ink all over the place. So, here you have a ductus of an A in the way that many of us would do it today. First one downstroke, pen lift, the other oblique, and then the crossbar and connect over to the next letter. It seems that the Romans, when they did it, began with one downstroke, then made the crossbar, and then did the second downstroke. Uh, this is borne out both in the way that A looked in an early anshul, but in particular, it is like that in the bookhand of Rome, which, because of this stroke sequence, lost the crossbar in the fullness of time. That was the um, rustic hand. So they would have written 
ductus that looked something like that. And this is a photograph of rather a bad, badly printed photograph from a Pompeian wall, and you can see that the third letter in this line is an A with a crossbar rather carelessly made. And here it is even further diminishing on a papyrus document that people disagree over to the extent of, of uh, beautiful friendships cooling off considerably. Um, and here on this um, brass plate where um, the tool makes even a greater demand on the writer, you have two A's in the top line and the crossbar is beginning to look like a little point. Now, having gone through that, let me digress just for a moment. You will notice in the slide on your right that you have the letters Q in two places. So, back to the A. Fifth century, and it has lost the crossbar altogether. But here is another thing, and that is the shape of the letter itself. Uh, I'd like to run through that very quickly. I'm, I'm sure that you don't need it, but let's do it all the same just for fun. Um, you have a very thin downstroke on one side. You have this exaggerated clump of a serif, and then you have a thick downstroke on the right-hand side. And this is how rustic looked when it was used, which wasn't much for the next six, seven centuries. Here is a manuscript from uh, about 975 AD. And when you get tired of a, a book hand, you tend to kick it upstairs. Uh, you introduce a new face for the body text, and you use the old style for headings, uh, which you see here in the Winchester Psalter. You have a Carolingian body text, you have a rustic subheading, and you have, as you can see just at the top there, uh, square Roman capitals for the main head. So here you have a late and rather shaky rustic, which still follows the same description of a very thin downstroke on one hand, exaggerated serif, and a thick downstroke on the other. No crossbar, of course. And when I saw this manuscript for the first time, I could hardly sleep the night after because of some of the rustic A's that I found in there. Um, the, the very top one had gone uh, into a different direction because they had added so much ornament to it, providing in its time inspiration for such thing as the Gaudi Lombardic. And in this Icelandic manuscript, the same thing is taken to its illogical conclusion of putting St. John into the letter and stretching a part of it all the way down to the basement plumbing. But back to that A I was talking about earlier, we are still seeing that manuscript that kept me awake. Um, we have added a serif to the top, but apart from that, this one would be on the borderline between a very late rustic and turning into 
its next incarnation, a fractal capital. And, and that elephant's trunk uh, went on growing and growing because then the scribes had really got the bit between their teeth. You see it right there. This is still this same exaggerated serif, thin downstroke, and the rest is just a wonderful flourish. And here is another one. This being the length itself, and the rest, just like the chromium on the Cadillac, not intended to get in, getting you there, but giving you a, a stylish ride. Uh, until, of course, they got to these letters. Um, this is Paulus Frank publishing in 1601 uh, and taking the fractal letter to its illogical conclusion. And, of course, I will hear you cry that this one has a crossbar and, uh, strictly speaking, this is not quite on the same basis. And I admit that this is just a sneaky and rather transparent excuse to get you to the next thing that I wanted you to see, which is a letter B also by Paulus Frank. And, of course, you all recognize that this is a letter B because we know how to recognize letters by following the ductus. Here is a simpler version that came out of the fractal revival of the 1880s. And you can see the first downstroke, the top loop and the bottom loop, and it's a letter M if we all agree that it is. It's letter B if we agree that it is. So I recreated this uh, letter B um, in my copious free time when I was a student. And this is how I think that Paulus Frank actually did it. He started out he started out here with the strokes that you already recognize, uh, broken up strokes that together make one downstroke and two loops. And then a few circles were added on because there was some extra room on the page. And after that, the griddle work would go in, what some people call waffle irons. And after that, you would put in whatever odds and ends you had lying around in the inkwell. So that is what you get. And now for some focus. Uh, but I cannot uh, go into the detail of extravagance in ornamented letters without just mentioning for once the work of Johann David Steingruber, who was a Bavarian um, official who inspected buildings. He saw the urgent need of the market for uh, these things, buildings that rich people could lay out to make up their initials. And to meet this need, he designed a lot of them, um, uh, complete with linen closets, latrines, staircases, and I am very sorry to say that due to nepotism and intrigue, none of these things actually were built, but it wasn't because pe people didn't have the chance. Um, you mainly tend to see these things um, being the butt of, 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 a, of a lot of nasty jokes, um, even nastier than the, the fun that I'm poking at them. But the remarkable thing is that when you start looking into the details of these things, they are actually livable. You could put two families in there and they would have a jolly good time. Um, here he was making a bow to royalty. He dedicated the volume to um, Frederica Carolina, the, the uh, princess of Bavaria at the time. Now, I had threatened you earlier on that after a breather I would go back to this combination of three late Roman cursive letters and now is the turn of the long S. Now this is, this is um, a close-up out of a letter from Catherine of Aragon to Henry VIII uh, while they were still on speaking terms. And in the bottom line there, there is a word that reads sendung which is, has a long S. This thing here. And in a close-up, wait a moment, wrong one. 
in a close-up, it looks like that. Um, I'd like to go into a little detail, little detail on how you write um, the letter S, uh, if you are a scribe with a broad-edged pen or a sign writer with a broad-edged brush, which I'm sure practically all of you are, but still let's refresh our memories. Um, we will begin at the narrowest place here. We will go down into a curve of one hand or another. Then we will lift the brush, go up here again, and we will finish the letter, which is what they did all the time. Uh, a step in between will show you better what I mean. This is a Merovingian line uh, with some um, Lombardic Beneventian influences in it. Um, and um, it has very little purpose in general except to demonstrate this one letter. We've got it right here. The serif is here to get the pen into the letter properly. You have the curve, and then with a lighter pressure at least, it goes up again and finishes off the letter. Not following the looks of the letter it, it was harking back to, but following the stroke sequence and the stroke movement. So you would have an S that looked like that. As I had to uh, tailor this talk originally to college audiences, I chose a word that they could relate to. Uh, it came out of the discourses of Aristotle, in case you wondered. Um, so you had for quite a while a long S and a rounded S, and there were certain rules that told you when you would use either one of them. And when they were used together, they came to make up the letter S set, which the Germans use, and only in the lower case. But that takes us over to the problem of the letter F, uh, which was formidable for two and a half centuries. Um, we all know this thing. Um, we first make the downstroke, and then we make the crossbar, and we're, we're done with it. Um, it goes back to uh, something that would probably look like that. Um, this would be a hieroglyph, the, the uh, stick that Pharaoh is showing people who is boss with. Um, this thing would be an, an early attempt at writing the letter F. And when they were doing it in a hurry, as these Phoenicians were, they would first make a curve on one side of the head, then the downstroke, and then they would finish off the other side of the head of this thing. Um, this could have been a peg. Wav in Hebrew is a peg. Um, but uh, for dramatic reasons, I tend to favor this explanation. So you would have something that looked like that, which, in a simpler version, first surviving Greek inscription, it looks something like this. And there, through uh, mixed parentage, we get over to the letter F as the Romans made it. And when the Romans made it, they made it like this. You follow the stroke sequence, the pattern, very quickly. And it stayed like that. Late Roman cursive again, top line, fairly two-thirds to the, to the left, looking like that. You see the downstroke, the loop making the top crossbar, the lower crossbar, and joined to the letter I. And, as I said, you recognize it still if you follow the stroke sequence and the stroke movement. And when the Roman clerks were having fun with it and making it look good, they would add little flourishes, not where we would do it, but it was logical to them. Up to a Carolingian charter, ninth century, looking great, top line. Here is the close-up. Again, you recognize the movement pattern, downstroke, the loop, and connect it again to the letter I. And when they really wanted to uh, have fun, it looked like that. And still the 
deviation was not so great that it would hamper legibility a great deal. Things like that. So we get to the, the Gothic marginalia. This thing here was a close-up that I almost killed myself making of this letter here. It, it happens when you put the body of the camera on one end of a postal tube and the lens on the other, take, take the thing out into bright sunlight and hope for the best. Anyway, you can still see the movement pattern, downstroke, loop, crossbar connected to the letter I. And the reason that I'm going into it in this detail is that I w want to make the force of this tradition very clear. The moral of it, which we will come to later, is what happens to you when you disregard this tradition, which some people actually did. Now here even is an Icelandic wood carving. This is a primitive... Um, um, ironing device and here you have the same thing an F rather than to connect it over to the next letter and come the renaissance where everything changed and we had italic handwriting invented. They took a gothic documentary hand, lopped off everything they thought they could do without, and added a new kind of a lowercase g, which you will find in the bottom line. And they were still using the, presumably, the, the gothic movement pattern of a downstroke loop and a crossbar that joined over to the next letter, but they were on the skids already they went over into a different stroke sequence. They made a letter F that looks as it does on the extreme right. Um, you see it in Arigi, for instance, when they started what they thought probably simplified things and imposed some order on, on letters that were not um, uniform enough, they started turning all the descenders, the parts of the letters that go below the baseline, to the left. The F, the G, even the Q. The G just went further to the left than the Q. And further on in time, they had to start to try to get from the descender and up to the crossbar by some means, and this led to all sorts of complexity, not because these guys really wanted to do it that way, it was because they were up against um, a clash of recognition points. You couldn't go straight away up to the crossbar because of what we talked about earlier. All these variations were a desperate wriggling to get out of the, the, the dead end where they had got until they came to what I'm showing you to the ultimate right a descender that turns to the right and the only descender that turns to the right of the whole lot um, is the descender of the F this by the way is Edward Cocker and all these F's were there because the long S had the same movement pattern so that when both of them had to go down, the here is a, a rounded S, a copper plate long S, and another rounded S. And when you had an S and an F that had the same movement pattern, the difference between them was so little that this was a constant headache. It took, as I said, two and a half centuries before they hit on the idea of turning the, the ductus over to the left, sorry, over to the right, and when James I started doing it, as you can see him doing in uh, the third line down, again here, then the opposition just gave up. They knew it was vulgar, and his 
and his uh, writing master fought against, against it all his living days. Um, but that is how his writing master. And on your right, you can see um, an Icelandic attempt to get out of this terrible mess, uh, one that uh, was gratefully acknowledged but not um, fitting our current needs. Um, so we are using a letter like that as a concession to tampering with ductus that didn't work. But there is a final irony to this. Um, I'm not going just to let this taper out now that I've had all this build-up. Uh, fin final irony. You remember what I said at the outset about what this movement pattern looks like. Now, if we take that one, turn it upside down, and flip it, we have what we have today. Because, after all, it is a very simple thing that if you have to get back to a crossbar, you have to make a loop somewhere. And even now, the F is a very fluid letter. Uh, it is beginning to turn mirror reverse, as you can see frequently in things like this. Both of them shot in London. And now, of course, that uh, you know about this system, we are going to have a little quiz for experience. Um, there, will, there will be no grades this time, but I could, because I know that you will all recognize this. This letter is, as I'm sure you all recognized immediately, um, Schwabacher type, capital H. And it has its own twisted logic. If we look at... Now the focusing, yeah. If you look at the way that the lowercase is written, uh, we put on a serif to get the ink flowing. We make the downstroke. We go up and make this loop that makes it into an H. And all we do in the capital letter is change the proportions. The serif has been turned into a swash. We shorten the downstroke because our arm likes so much to make this marvelous circular movement, and that was all we needed. See? Easy. So, yes, and there were, of course, not just these two forces. There were other forces, too, such as the um, power of the snobs and just plain uh, inexplicable silliness. Um, now, here is an example of a tradition that existed in, in Gothic painting, um, of putting the name of the saint in question inside the halo. And, and in those days, as now, uh, the Arabs seemed to have all the money in town, and a lot of interesting things were coming into Europe through Spain and so on. So um, here is a picture of uh, Mary, which is in the National Gallery in London, and um, they inside her halo they put rubbish Arabic, which is called among art historians pseudo-Kufic. The Kufic, which is here on your left, does not bear much resemblance to this. Um, the style that I think they were trying to imitate would probably be close closer to Thuluth, but it's the same thing. Um, they said, this is nice, let's have some of that. So they did. Um, and here is another example. Let me focus this thing. This Jew here, Baskerville again. And where did Baskerville get this? Well, before Baskerville uh, earned enough money from uh, making Japanware to set himself up in printing and then lost it all again making good books. Before all of that, he was a writing master. And the copperplate writing in those days had to uh, stand um, legal battles over the contents of the letters. So in those days, you would end pretty much every line of a business letter with a little flourish in the way that you close off a line in a check book today. You would do this beautifully so that people wouldn't say, you think I'm going to add millions after that? But still, it was done. 
And when Baskerville needed uh, his own cue, you can see where he got it. He said, let's have some of that. And today even, we saw some of that, which is um, oriental calligraphy on silk in an utterly irresistible style, and we wanted some of that, and by gum we got it. And um, to show you also that there is very little new under the sun, here is uh, an Egyptian wall which I went up to and photographed conveniently in the British Museum, which has all the Egyptian walls that we need. And in there, in the middle, is an eye, which was used as the hieroglyph for the letter O, when they needed the letter O. And in early Greek inscriptions, you will see a circle with a dot in the middle for an Omicron. And, well, you will also see a dot in the middle uh, which would then develop into the crossbar of the theta, but this is actually a Greek, an early Greek O. And that will lead to the letter O that we all know and love. And all the way back over, 34th Street, I photographed it right there. And we are getting much closer to the end than we were when we started out. And you have been a marvelous audience. And I'm just going to show you a few examples of uh, the tend toward artificiality and decoration going absolutely berserk. Um, here you have the Kairu combination out of um, an insular manuscript which now resides in Sweden. It's called Codex Aureus, and the Kairu is the what we would call XP at the beginning there, initials of Christ. And here we have one of the unfinished pages of the Lindisfarne Gospel showing the same trend where people had gone even further. And ending this, we would have the opening of Matthew and the Book of Kells. And um, I have often wondered at the eyes that these men had and uh, uh, the things that you do for fun when you have practically nothing else to do for fun. Uh, but what I'd like to point out in particular is a, a section of this, a roundel at the exit strokes of the exit. Yes, this part here, which is probably about an inch in diameter. That is this thing here. Now, if you can come up with a better sample of what I was talking about, please let me know on a postcard. Thank you all very much indeed.